Jonah 1, 1 through 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Thank, this is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Thanks, Kate. Well, we are officially in the season of Epiphany, and what that is, is that's a, that's a season of the church calendar that flows right after Christmas, right before Lent, and it's the time where the church uh, celebrates the revelation of Jesus as the Savior of the world, that he's come to save and redeem people, not just people that look like us, but the, the Savior of the nations, of the of, of, the world, as it were. And so it's, it's, it's traditionally a time in the life of the church where we um, focus our attention on the theme of God's mission, his mission in the world and his mission to the world. And so to set this up, I wanted to uh, share a story that I heard from a friend of mine named Brent Webster. Uh, in the year 2000, early 2000s, there were, there were these two guys that were the startup of this young company. And uh, they stepped into the office of the CEO at Blockbuster, and they wanted to pitch this idea. Blockbuster at the time was valued at $6 billion. They had 9,000 video rental stores around the world. And you may remember what this was like if you're, you know, my age or older, I suppose. Uh, if you wanted to watch a movie at home... Back in the day, what you had to do was get in your car and drive to a physical store to look for a VHS tape. You would browse the aisles looking for the movie that you wanted, and if, if they had the movie and they didn't have enough cartridge, you know, tapes behind the one you wanted, you, you didn't watch that movie that night. It was a very challenging time for us as a people. And, uh, but you would, you would, you know, you'd rent it for you know, a day or two, Watch it, and you remember you had to rewind it. You had to rewind the tape before you could return it, because if you if you returned it unrewound, unwound, it was uh, you got penalized. You got you know a fee, and so my dad bought a uh, one of those machines dedicated to rewinding the v, VCR tapes faster. Did anybody else have this little machine, this little gadget? One, a couple, okay, we were, we, you know, we were big time. I thought this was a big deal. We got a machine to rewind the tapes. Anywho, the year is 2000, early 2000s, and these two folks go into the CEO's office of Blockbuster, pitch this idea, and they say, hey, we got an idea. What if we um, had people order DVDs from us online? This is technology that advanced a little bit. And we mailed it to their house with a return envelope, and they could watch it and then return to us and do the whole thing from the convenience of their house. And uh, this little startup company was, of course, called Netflix. Netflix is now worth $229 billion. They offered to sell this idea to Blockbuster for $50 million. They were declined. Uh, Blockbuster, on the other hand, declared bankruptcy in the year 2010, and there, there's only, you know how many Blockbuster stores there are left? One. Somebody knows. Uh, it's in Bend, Oregon. It's the only Blockbuster store remaining. In fact, here's the irony. Uh, there's a Netflix documentary about this one Blockbuster store that's 
it's still there. Here's the point, is that Blockbuster has become obsolete and Netflix has become omnipresent. It is just integrated into everything that we do. It's integrated into our vocabulary. In fact, I was at the grocery store this week and saw a Ben & Jerry's ice cream flavor called Netflix and Chilled, which is amazing. Uh, it's, just, it's just who we are, what we do. Now, here's the, here's the point. Why did Blockbuster fail? Blockbuster failed because they forgot who they were. They thought they were in the video rental business and forgot that they were in the home entertainment business. And so they've become obsolete and irrelevant and, you know, Netflix is, you know, everything now. The reason I bring that up is because it's easy for churches to forget who we are as well. It's easy for us to forget why, why we are here, why are we doing what we're doing. It's easy for us to make the mistake of just thinking that we're in the spiritual entertainment business. And when we think that we're in the spiritual entertainment business, what that looks like is we, we become a group of people who get together once a week. We have some coffee. We have some free donuts, sing some songs, listen to some teaching. And uh, this is also one of the reasons why church people have a reputation for being uh, complainy, high complainers in the church-going community, because it's easy to think, well, you know, I, I didn't like the music that week. The sermon went a little too long that week. I didn't like it. Uh, why'd they change the communion stuff? Why, why, they, you know, they changed the, the color of the carpet, or they changed the paint, or, you know, you know whatever. Uh, and it's easy for church people to think like customers... Because like customers, we complain if we don't get the service provided that we think we deserved. And so if we're a spiritual entertainment industry and we're not providing the right kind of entertainment, then we complain. But here's the thing. That's not who we are. We're not in the spiritual entertainment business. We're in the advancing the kingdom of God business. We're a church not just for ourselves. We're a church. That's what it means to be Christian is to be people who are synced up with what God is doing in the world and, and participating and being sent into the world to go do something. And so for this season of Epiphany where we're thinking about the mission of God, I think there's no better place for us to spend our time for the next few weeks camped in the book of Jonah. Now, you, you may be completely unfamiliar with Christianity. You may have never read the Bible before, but you, you're probably at least familiar with the book of Jonah, at least in theory, in, in idea. You may have heard of Jonah in the, in the whale, Jonah in the fish. These are themes that have popped up in Pinocchio or Moby Dick. And, and for some of you, I know right there, you're like, okay, see, that right there is why I, I have a hard time getting into this Christianity thing because you're going to tell me some dude was swallowed by a whale, a fish, and survive. That, it's, it feels so fairy tale-ish, so fake. I, I can't get into it because, of, because precisely because of stuff like this. And here's what I would say. I would say, if you're going to get tripped up over a miraculous claim in the Bible, don't get tripped up over the fish. Don't get tripped over, over Jonah. Get tripped up over the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is, does not rise and fall over whether or not Jonah was literally in a whale or not, or in a fish or not. Christianity does rise or fall over whether or not Jesus of Nazareth walked out of a grave alive. So if you're going to get hung up on a miraculous claim, don't get snagged on this one. And here's the other thing I would say. If the fish thing is a big problem for you, can I just gently say you might be missing the forest for the trees? 
The fish is not the point of the book. In fact, of this whole book, which is four chapters long, there are two verses explicitly talking about the fish. Two verses that mention the fish and the whole thing. The book is not about a fish. It's not really even about Jonah. The book is about God chasing after people who want nothing to do with him. It's about the mission of God. And so what we're going to do for this season of Epiphany is we're going to lean into what does it mean for us to participate in this mission as we look at this book, and we're going to see that the main thing that's driving God's mission forward is his compassion. So I want you to see two things this morning as we ease into this book, that God's compassion is on full display in these two verses in how he sees and in who he sends. How God sees and then who he sends. And by the way, just to cite my sources, I'm getting help from a friend of mine, Matt Grimsley. Thank you, Matt, for the help. Um, first, how do we see in these first few verses how God sees? Well, the story begins with the word of God coming to this man named Jonah with an assignment. He says in verse 2, hey, I want you to arise, get up, and go to Nineveh. Now, if you're unfamiliar, Nineveh was a city. It was a large metropolitan city, huge, urban, massive city, about 500 miles northeast of where Jonah would have been in the area of Israel. Now, what you need to know about about Nineveh, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire were bitter enemies of God's people and bitterly opposed to God himself. So much so, after this story of Jonah, down the road in the year 722 BC, Assyria would come in and invade Israel and obliterate their whole northern territory. So, so when Jonah gets this message, I want you to go to Nineveh. This was not like an exciting opportunity to go to some fun foreign city for a vacation. This, this sounded to him like a suicide mission. This would have been like telling a German man or a German woman living in Germany, or no, not a German, a Jewish man or a Jewish woman living in Germany in the 1940s, hey, go, go share your faith with some Nazis. That's how crazy this would have sounded. But on top of that, it wasn't just that the Assyrians were opposed and enemies to God and his people, they were, had this notorious reputation for being uh, violent, barbaric, brutal. In fact, one of the commentaries that I read said, quote, Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Now, I'm going to give you a few examples of that next week, but let me just give you one now to show how violent they were. Whenever the Assyrians would conquer their enemies they would cut off the enemy's legs, both legs, and one arm, leaving one arm and one hand for them to shake and mocking them as they're bleeding out and dying. I mean, that's like some sick, twisted stuff. But here's what I want you to notice. L look at verse 2. Here's a little detail that you might have missed. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, some commentators think all, all, he, all he's saying there is it's just big. It's a great, big, ginormous city, to quote our friend Buddy the Elf. 
But that's, that's not exactly what's in mind here. In fact, every time you read, if you read through the whole book, every time that God mentions Nineveh, he refers to it as a great city. In fact, the, very ver, the last verse of the whole thing, God says to Jonah, should I not have compassion on that great city? And what, what you see here is that greatness isn't just referred to its size, it's referred to its significance. God says, this place matters to me. I have compassion on this place. This place is, uh, I care about it. In fact, this is the whole reason he's sending Jonah there in the first place. He has compassion for this place. He doesn't say, go to that wicked, evil, horrible city. He says, go to that great city, which is so important for us to realize that the first thing that God sees, when he sees a city that is overtly broken, and violent and dangerous as he sees its dignity. Go to Nineveh, that great city. He sees their dignity, but that's not all he sees. He also sees their depravity. I mean, you see that in the rest of the verse when he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Calling out against it means to protest, to use your words to push against it. He, he, he's saying, okay, they've, they've rejected me, they've rejected my will, they've replaced me with their own desires, and as a result, look at how violent and dark and evil and miserable they are. And so, in, in, so in fact, um, in chapter 4, God says this to Jonah about them. He says, these people don't even know their right hand from their left which was a, a, a way of saying um, the, these people are lost. They, um, it's like they don't even know which end is up. They're living in a, in a spiritual fog. Now, you hear that, and as modern people, we think, that doesn't sound compassionate. It sounds kind of mean. Like, I want you to go there and use your words and protest because they're evil. This does not sound compassionate, but it is, and here's why. Uh, my son, Reed, who um, many of you might know, um, let's just say that we're hanging out in the kitchen one day, and he takes a bottle of Clorox bleach and unscrews the cap and says, wow, this looks delicious, which, if you know anything about Reed, this is within the world of possibilities. And he put the bottle to his lips and started to put his head back. Now, what would be the, the unloving non-compassionate thing for me to do. Nothing. To just sit there and watch him drink poison and say, hey, I mean, I wouldn't have done it, but you do you, bruh. But the compassionate thing, no, of course, what I said, stop, what are you doing? And, and that, the most compassionate, loving thing to do for someone that you care about, that you see is about to destroy themselves, is to intervene. And so God intervenes. He sends Jonah to these people to say, stop, he's chasing after them. Not because he wants to condemn them and judge them and make their lives miserable. It's the exact opposite. He wants them to experience fullness and he wants to experience life. But here's what I want you to see. If you put all that together, how does God see them? How does God see? He sees their dignity and he sees their depravity. And so here's the question before we move on to the second idea. Is that how you see? Do you see like God sees? When you think about our city, when you think about the people who live right here in Midtown, do you see them through the same lens that God sees people? 
because we live in a, in, a, in a moment, in a cultural moment where we are pushed and pressured and bullied toward the extremes, where it's really hard to hold two ideas that might seem opposed to each other in tension, and so we're, we're pushed towards to polarities. And so here's the two temptations that we might face. Some of you might be only tempted to see the dignity in people. You only see the dignity in people. And what that looks like now is that the culture has said, if you want to be loving, if you want to be compassionate towards people, the way that you do that is to, is to accept everything about them. It's this posture of just wholehearted affirmation. Wh whoever you want to be, whoever you want, whatever you want to do, wh whatever you believe about the world, great, I'm in. To love you is to accept, approve, affirm everything about it, no questions asked. And if you criticize at all, any criticism is seen as wrong. It's not just because it's judgy and kind of icky, but because now criticism is seen as a form of oppression. How dare you assert yourself over and against somebody else? The only posture of love is wholehearted affirmation and acceptance to only see somebody's dignity. And then others of us are tempted towards the other extreme where we only see people's depravity I was reading an article um, this past week, uh, the pastor was being interviewed, and he was talking about why our culture seems so polarized right now, why, why we're just at each other's throats and it seems so divided. And his, his take was kind of interesting. He said he thinks one of the reasons why we're so divided is because we are, his words, being radicalized to the left and to the right because we're constantly being bombarded and we're immersed day in and day out through news feeds and social media and our feedback loops and our little echo chambers and we're just immersed in these spaces and we're being radicalized, which is an interesting word. I think it's an appropriate word. But he said people are being persuaded to go further and further extreme, not because of arguments, but because of outrage that when you hear somebody raging against the way that the world is, that connects with something in you viscerally, and it's, it's contagious, and you get amped up, and that's why we have outrage culture, and that's, why, that's where cancel culture bore out of, because it creates in you this posture of fear towards anyone who believes something differently from you. It creates a posture of criticism and condemnation towards people who think differently from you. And so uh, what, this, is, this, this is why we cancel people now. If you have violated any of my... Uh, cardinal values. If you have violated something, you, you are irredeemable in my sight. And so we, we boycott celebrities, we boycott companies, we boycott institutions, and what are we doing? We, we are defining these people or these institutions by their sin. We're only seeing their depravity. You see how, how, how the culture is making you pick. You have to either be 100% affirming, accept everything about somebody, or they're done. Cancel them. That's not how God sees. There's truth in both of these, but the full way that God sees is he sees our dignity, and he's not afraid to name what's wrong. He also calls out our depravity. He sees both. Do you see the same way that God sees? You see God's compassion displayed in how he sees, but here's the second thing. You also see his compassion displayed in who he sends. Let me show you. Uh, look at verse 1. It doesn't say, Now the word of the Lord came to Nineveh. 
It could have. God could have easily just spoken directly to the Assyrians, just thundered from on high, stop it, repent, can you turn to me? But he doesn't. What does he do? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and you go. You be the one that goes to Nineveh. God sends his word through his people, through you, through me, through us. This kind of reminds me, I was thinking about group projects. Remember group projects you had to do in school, or some of you might be in school and experiencing the nightmare of group projects where the the professor or the teacher would pair you up with a bunch of random classmates you don't know to go do this assignment. And uh, it's funny to me how, how different students have different responses to the group project thing. Some students are like, I'm going to do nothing, and I'm going to be completely unavailable, and good luck with that. And other students, this is when I fell into, was like, y'all just don't worry, I'll just do it all. I will, if, if, if it's going to be done right, then I'm the one that's going to have to do it. Now, here's what's fascinating. God involves us in this project of his of renewing and restoring the world. He involves us, and he doesn't have to. He could have much better done it by himself than including us. He didn't need us. He didn't need Jonah. He could have easily said, if I'm going to get this thing done right, I'll just do it myself. But this is an important truth that this passage shows us, that God shows his compassion to the world through his people. He is nonstop committed to that reality, that I'm going to show and display my compassion to the world through my people. Now think about his people. Think about Jonah. Do you know what the word Jonah means in Hebrew? It's the same word for the word dove, like the bird, a dove. And you think, oh, it's cute. Cute little dove on a Hallmark card, little Jonah. That is not the connotation that doves had in the Bible. In fact, let me read you um, an example. Hosea 7, verse 11 says this, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. That's the language in the Bible. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. Doves have the reputation for not being the smartest or the sharpest tool in the shed, to quote Smash Mouth, just to keep them relevant. Um, doves flew kind of any, you know, fly in erratic ways. They're, they're easily trapped. It's, it's basically another word for someone who's kind of a dummy someone who's a fool. And Jonah, if, if, you, if you stick around with us and you kind of read through the rest of this book, you will know that Jonah lives up to his name. Jonah resists the mission of God. He runs from God. He hates the idea of grace. He's a racist. He's a nationalist. He's self-righteous. He's just like the worst. And you think God surely had better options than this dude. God surely could have gone with a better plan than choosing this guy, and yet he doesn't. He comes to him and sends him. And the same is true for you and me. He comes to us, and he sends us. And you think, well, good grief, he's got better options than us. He's got a better option than me. Because the reality is, is you and I are no different from jo- Jonah. We resist his mission. We are allergic to his grace. We run from him. We are racist. We have confusing uh, relationships with nationalism. We, uh, we're just as self-righteous. We're a, we're a mess too. And he is committed 
to using us, committed to involving us. And so here's the thing. He comes to Jonah, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you to go with my words to Nineveh. That's the call. These two aspects, go and go speaking what I'm going to tell you to speak. And the same call is true for us. If you identify yourself as a Christian, who you are is you are someone called to go with the words of the Lord. And here we are as a church, and we feel our calling is right here in the midtown, right here into this part of the city, and we feel called to go with the very words of the Lord. And so, again, there are two temptations here for us. We're pulled towards the extreme. Some of you love the idea of going. Like, let's go. Let's go do some stuff. Let's go, like, get involved in this city and get out on the streets. Why are we wasting time navel-gazing and praying and doing stuff like this? We're excited about the social action part of going. And if we're honest, we're embarrassed by the word of the Lord part. We like the go part. Don't really want to be associated with the Jesus part. And here's what I want you to see is that the word that comes to Jonah isn't just this vague general humanitarian word. It is the word of the Lord. He goes bearing witness to God's name. He goes speaking God's words. He goes in the interest of God's kingdom. And we, we do the same. So some of us are tempted towards that extreme. Others of us are tempted towards the other extreme where we love the word of the Lord part. Love the Bible stuff, love the worship stuff, the going part, not as excited about, not as thrilled about. And so what that tends to happen is, is Christians tend to withdraw and disengage from the city, disengage with Midtown, because if we're honest, Midtown is not a very hospitable place for Bible-believing Christians. Uh, it's easy to say, well, we're going to pull our kids, we're going to remove our kids if we have kids from Midtown schools because it doesn't feel safe, it feels threatening to our faith. We're only going to engage with and spend our time with people that think like us, and it's comfortable. And the reality is, is we just, a lot of us just love our comfort a lot more than we love our neighbors. So what does it look like for you to do both? For you to go with the words of the Lord. That's the calling. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be participating. I mean, God's always sending us somewhere. He never just says, great, you just hang out in the corner. He's always sending people out. But here, here's the good news. Before God's compassion can flow through us, it first has to flow to us. Before God sends us, he first sends someone to us. Because Jonah fails, everyone else after him fails, and you and I are going to fail too. This is why God in his goodness sends a truer and a better Jonah to his enemies. He sends King Jesus to us. And you know what Jesus does? He completely affirms our dignity by becoming one of us. He takes on flesh. And at the same time, he acknowledges our depravity. He suffers under the wrath of God for our sins. He's not afraid to name it. He says these people have sinned. There's real evil and damage that they're doing to themselves and to each other, but don't punish them. Punish me instead. And so what this means for us is that we're just, we're just like Jonah, just as messed up, just as dove-like, just as foolish, and yet God does not abandon us. He doesn't give up on us. No matter how messy, screwed up we are, how dove-like we are, he keeps running after us. And that's going to be a theme that we continue to see over and over and over throughout this book. Do, do you know what um, 
the rest of Jonah's name means. Jonah, dove, dummy, son of Amittai. You know what that means in Hebrew? Son of my faithfulness. And I think Jonah's name is what a Christian is in a nutshell. A Christian is someone who, on the one hand, comes to term with the fact that I, I'm, I'm a dove, I'm faithless, I'm, I'm a rebel, I run, I'm a mess, my life is a mess, and yet I'm a son of his faithfulness. I'm a daughter of his faithfulness. I am loved, I am forgiven, I am pursued. Faithless and the recipient of his faithfulness. That's what a Christian is. And in light of the grace and the compassion that we receive, God sends us out to go give it away. So I want to invite you. If you're someone who knows that you are in need of grace and has experienced that same grace, I want to invite you to think about what would it look like for me to see Midtown and this city in the way that God sees it? What would it look like for me to go with the very words of the Lord deeper into this part of our city? How do I flesh, how do I reflect the very compassion that I have received in Jesus? As Tish Harrison Warren puts it in this first little bulletin or the first little reflection on your bulletin that she says, what a Christian is is someone who identifies, someone who is known that they are blessed and sent. That's who we are. We're blessed and we're sent. So consider that an invitation to go with the words of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, would you help us to think out and figure out how can we reflect a compassion that we have been given? How can we take deeper risks? How can we be like Jonah who feel like you're calling us to something dangerous, something scary, something that we're, we're in over our heads, and yet know that you're with us, that we're empowered by your spirit to go, that you do not even abandon us as we try and as we fail and as we get up and we try again. Help us to figure out how can we participate in this great mission of yours? How can we love what you love and hate what you hate? How can we see the way that you see? Give us the very compassion of our compassionate God. And it's in the name of your son, King Jesus, we pray.